you are going to love our topic and guest today where we talk about all things collaboration. Whether it is in business or on a personal level, collaboration is a practice where individuals work together towards a common goal. Being effective in collaboration requires first and foremost a change in attitude and behavior, allowing yourself to be open to learn from others. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how we can harness the power of collaboration in order to build meaningful relationships in all aspects of our lives. And our guest is certainly no stranger to this month's topic. Natasha Pellethorpe, also known as Tash, is the group health manager within Downer Zero Harm team, is a principal master instructor for Mental Health First Aid Australia, and has been championing collaboration and empathetic leadership from a very early age. Collaboration is really about having conversations and educating each other on different things. I think when you do grow up in a family that has such unique dynamics, you really do foster around the individual in your family that has special health needs. And our whole lives was always about keeping Jason thriving because if he was thriving, we were all thriving. Tash is passionate about positively influencing workplace health and well-being for employees, their families and the communities in which they live. She strongly believes in health information and neuropsychology and its ability to reduce mental health stigma and provide practical skills to early responders. Her passion for holistic health, physical and mental and well-being for all is evident in both her personal and professional life. Tash talks about the rewards and challenges that come with being a caregiver to a family member and how that experience has shaped the person she is today. I hope that you love this chat. Hello and welcome to Share, Learn, Connect. I am Georgia Lutby and I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet today. Downer employs people across more than 300 sites, primarily in Australia and New Zealand, but also in the Asia-Pacific region, South America and Africa. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and recognise and celebrate the diversity of First Peoples across all of the various lands, their ongoing cultures and connections to land, sea and community. So first of all, Tash, welcome. I would love you to tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are at Downer and who you are outside of Downer. At Downer, I have the privileged position of being the group health manager, which means essentially in very shorthand, I get to structure our health and wellbeing approaches within the business and for all of our different sectors across Australia and New Zealand. So it's a great role. Outside of Downer, COVID has certainly changed my life. So I've gone from pre-COVID where I was a single professional, pretty solo and just traveling the world and an artist and an art therapist as well, to now being a fiance. I'm getting married in three weeks. I still do some art therapy on the side to keep my clinical skills very high so that I can bring that into my work at Downer. I'm a friend, I'm a daughter, so I'm very fortunate. I've got lots of elements that make up my life. Can you tell me, Tash, a little bit about how you got into art therapy? I got into it purely from the fine art side. My mum's very creative and she helped foster my creative side to help me process with being the eldest sibling of two younger brothers, but also my middle brother has severe disabilities. So there was quite a few times in our childhood where he would be having life-saving operations. And so that would create a lot of angst as a sibling. So I would use art as a way of expressing myself. And so I always use that to help me process and contain and kind of just move through these challenges. I went to university, studied visual arts and then decided like what most Australians do at the age of 21 to backpack around the globe and I did. I left for a year and I 
went to find who I was outside of my family circle. And that's where I discovered the career of art therapy, which is combining a love of talking and people and psychology and creative modalities. Can you tell me about your upbringing? What was your household like? Tell me about your family. Who's who? My dad has a love of the ocean and he lives on his boat. I call him Captain Bly, but not because he's cranky or or intolerant, just because he loves the sea. My mum, I always call the goddess because she's so approachable and very wise and just very soft and loving. Jason is the middle brother. He's three years younger than I am. And Jason was born early, premature, and then he had a few challenges in that kind of patch, had a seizure and lost oxygen to his brain and developed what we call acquired cerebral palsy. He was given a diagnosis of uh, one year survival rate. And we celebrated on September 16th this year, his 40th birthday. So he has survived 39 years longer than what was expected. So this man is a survivor and he's a real inspiration. He has quite severe CP. Most people with cerebral palsy will have one side that's sort of like a hemiplegia that's a little bit lower in tone or function. Jason's a high achiever. He knocked out both sides. He hasn't actually had the ability to have the walking and talking for layman. He hasn't been able to speak a word or walk, but it also means he doesn't have voluntary control. He has involuntary control. He's certainly very ticklish. So he's got a lot of feeling in his body. He just doesn't have a lot of control. He can communicate with those of us who know him well, just with an eye glance or with a smile or a screwed up face. We kind of know what his no looks like. We know what his yes looks like. And then underneath Jace, I have my beautiful baby, baby brother. He's a beautiful soul. His life's been tweaked by Jason's lessons and he's a gentle human. So yeah, it's lovely. Just for my interest, and I know you Mm. don't speak on behalf of everyone, but a lot of people use different terms when it comes to disability, special needs, diverse abilities. For the purposes of this episode, what should we refer to it as? I probably grew up using disability and I always say Jason has a small disc but a lot of ability. Special needs is great as well. We all have needs. His are just a little bit more special or unique to his abilities. Our topic this month is collaboration. What does collaboration mean to you? Everybody working together in a synergy. And it doesn't matter how they're working. It's in their own way, their own process. But everyone kind of adding into the pile and then we're creating this amazing synergy and working towards a similar goal or a shared set of goals. It sounds like during your upbringing, there would have been a lot of collaboration. Can you tell me about that? (laughs) I remember we had a neighbour. They were brand new and I was over there chatting because, you know, I talk the legs off a stool I do and I was welcoming them to the neighbourhood and she at the time was pregnant and had two younger ones. She ended up having four children. I said, come over and meet mum. And Jason was on the floor in the lounge and he's beanbag watching TV and she came up the stairs and we were chatting and chatting and then Jason laughed at something on the TV and she turned around, saw him. She'd scoop the kids up, ran down the stairs. And I remember thinking, hello, I've gone over the brand. What's happened? Are you okay? She's like, is he contagious? And I went, oh, no, no, come on up. Let me teach you all about Jace. I was eight. These were the conversations I was having with adults, you know, at that time. And sometimes you need to educate and you need to be patient and acknowledge other people's perspectives and fears and concerns and worries and then alleviate those through conversations. Collaboration is incredibly important. You talk about taking on almost the role of an educator in some of the aspects of your life and being the advocate. I'm sure that comes with a significant amount of resilience. How do you not wear that on your shoulders day to day and let that 
emotionally impact you? I think I was very fortunate that I had a family that wasn't afraid of talking. And so I had a very empathic family and you were able to say, I'm not okay. And they'd go, all right, what do you need? And then we would have that conversation, find a solution and off you would go. I think resilience is a part of recognizing where you're at and then seeking the wise counsel of those around you or coaching or mentoring or even your own inner experiences and going, what did I do last time that worked? Okay, let me try this. A big improvement in my ability to be so resilient because I had all the fundamental building blocks of health and all the neurotransmitters that we need to stabilize mood. And I also had that amazing network around me to be able to say, I'm not okay or I am okay or maybe let's do this and have that creative synergy for problem solving. So I think they were the areas that got me through. Do you think what you wanted to be when you grew up was the same as those around you? Or do you think that your upbringing of growing up in the household that you were in, it changed that? I was always focused in on what we could do. And there was so much choice and so much we could do. And in fact, feeling sorry for yourself isn't something we really tolerated or was modelled in our family. When you've got a sibling that's really fighting and has such severe disabilities and can push through it, you don't really have a lot of excuse to kind of feel sorry for, oh my goodness, I'm breaking out or, oh my goodness, I'm just not the right height. Dad would pretty much just go, and look at Jace. And you'd be like, yep, yep, stop feeling sorry for myself. So really the world was our oyster and we were always very aware that we were very grateful we were healthy. And it absolutely makes sense in hindsight as to why I got drawn into the health realms and that's where my career has ended up. Jason needed 24-hour care and mum and dad would do that as much as they could. And of course they were working as well. And then we'd have carers as well as allied health coming in to do physio, speech therapy, OT. I was always involved. I never thought anything of it and carers would come and go and my job was really to make them feel comfortable and help them. Our lives were quite different to my peers and and other people that, you know, as an adult, you kind of chat to and reflect and it's significantly different. Do you think that the world, especially in the 80s and 90s as he was growing up, was the world set up for people who didn't have mainstream abilities? No, it certainly wasn't. There was a significant amount of stigma. I got really socially intolerant of injustice and there were other children with varying abilities. So I always became their advocate because I was always Jason's voice. I think I just took it on my my own bat to be everybody's voice. You know, there are a few people who would stare at Jason because he's very physically disabled. Like he can't even hold his own head. People would be staring at him. So I used to slowly put my head down right to where his was and stare back. And then they get uncomfortable and realise I was staring and I'd be like, come and say hello to him. I certainly think that the physical disability, which is very much easier to see, had a lot more fear around it. I think that started to change because we started to see more people out and about in the community because access was available. I love that, you know, being the advocate or the voice for those who may not have the voice or being their seat at the table. I think that education is so important and policy or people consulting with the communities is so important. I remember dislocating my knee a few years ago and I personally hadn't realised how inaccessible the world was. And I was almost ashamed of it because I should have known. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe if there were any barriers and whether they still exist today? We had lots of barriers. Jason was getting older and we lived in a three-storey house and the bottom floor was literally just the garage entryway and the office. And then the next floor was Jason's room, kitchen, lounge room, all the social rooms. We have to get him up to the second level. And that was okay when he was younger. We could just kind of lift him and hoik him up 
up. But as he got older, you pull in the chair backwards up 24 stairs. The Lions Club heard about this and they raised a lot of money to put in a water lift into our house. That was the beginning of me really realising just how hard it was. Getting him up to the shops, getting him into the movie theatres, anything like that, we'd have to lift him out of his chair. We'd sit him in the aisle in a beanbag with his chair parked at the back until the cinemas started to cotton on and create the beautifully designed cinema seating that we have now where you've got the space for the wheelchair in between chairs. What does socialising look like for him? Jason has this amazing, uncanny ability to change people's lives and perspectives at just a glance. People will see him and it will help them reevaluate. He's very confronting physically, I think, and that's what often will really get people to have a reaction and then think about their reaction. He goes shopping one day a week. He goes 10-pin bowling another day of the week. He goes sailing for the disabled on Wednesdays. He goes to music and dance classes. That man can rock a good boogie in his wheelchair. He lives in a house with another gentleman who has cerebral palsy has a little bit more mobility and is very verbal, very verbal. He talks for both of them. He really does have this presence. He is more spiritual than the rest of us in the family. He actually goes to church on a Sunday and they take him out of the chair and put him in the beanbag at the front. All the children just migrate to him. They sit on him and around him and he spends the whole time interacting with the children. And children are great because they don't see as many boundaries. They're not as fearful unless they're taught to be so. And so they're very open with Jason. He loves that. I've got a friend who's son was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and she talks a lot about how it reassesses what success in life looks like and a lot of people in their upbringing are told that success might look like working full-time or it might look like having a family. What does success look like to you when you're a child? Has that changed with your experience with Jason about what life success looks like and feels like? Success for us was health because if we could keep him healthy and keep ourselves healthy, life was easier. (laughs) We weren't in hospitals and we didn't have a lot of medical intervention. We didn't see the lack of materials at all because we were too busy out there with nature, being creative with what we could find. So success was problem solving as well. Success was being connected and having that social network and love and families. What are some of the most rewarding parts of being Jason's sister? Gosh, unconditional love. That man teaches me lessons every time about acceptance and gratitude and never making assumptions. But if you're completely dependent on others, you have to have a level of trust. And, you know, that's incredible. He's very grateful for everything. You never see him in low patches. You see him in pain and discomfort, but never psychologically or emotionally low. He doesn't want to sit at the TV. He's just not that type of person. He's probably a little bit more like the rest of us in the family. We like a lot of stimulation and we love learning new things and doing new things. And what does it mean to be a caregiver? It can be very lonely and very solo feeling at times and you can really energetically get very low giving and holding other humans. I watched my parents go up and down and I saw my mum hit burnout. It wasn't through a lack of love. It was just through a lack of energy, giving and giving and advocating and advocating. She's got this amazing ability, but I have seen her forget to look after herself. Sometimes it took all of our energies to hold him when he was so low and fighting for life. But at the end of the day, you do have to nurture your own self so that you can then be there to nurture others. I imagine when you grew up, especially or when you're with Jason out, people might have empathy or perhaps they might have sympathy, which I understand are two very different things. 
Can you talk to that a little yeah, bit? I love that. I get asked this one all the time. I always just simply say, well, sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. So if you told me something, I'd be like, that seems like a personal problem for you. And, you know, it's really just, I feel really sorry for you, but I'm really glad that's not me. And then they kind of don't connect in any other way other than going, whoo, thank goodness that's not me. Whereas empathy is more about if I imagine that I was in that experience, what do I imagine that would feel like and how challenging would that be? And it's a willingness to ask what's that like for you and really listen to and understand the feelings and the challenges another is experiencing. Do you think that stigma has changed over time throughout the course of your life? I think we're at a point where physical disabilities are far more accepted and probably, I'm going to use the word tolerated, which is a really interesting word, and people will have less compassion fatigue for physical disabilities. So you were saying you you hurt your your leg. When, when How long ago was that, Georgia? Uh, two years ago, I was carving it up on the dance floor, in my opinion, at the Boundary Hotel, and I dislocated my knee dancing to 500 miles, which, you know, is, yes, is the best good way. Song. To- so you would have seen that people would be going out of their way to help you. Oh, do you need me to move this? Can I help you with that? It's the neural diverse, it's the psychological side of health and well-being where I think we're still at a higher level of stigma. I'd almost say 10, 15 years behind the physical disabilities are the psychological and neural diverse challenges. There's a saying that I found, especially when I was pregnant, interestingly, that people would say, what's the gender? And people go, oh, as long as they're healthy, that's the only thing that is important. And a Mm. friend of mine said to me when her child was diagnosed with cerebral palsy that all of a sudden she felt a little bit like, well, he's not healthy. So what does that mean then? It's a balance, isn't it? It's not just physical health and psychological health. It's also being connected. It's having meaningful activity. It's having your needs met, feeling a master of your own destiny, contributing to whatever community you're involved in, be that family, friends, work, etc., Health, it's probably a lot bigger. It's a microcosm. It's a tapestry. It's a blanket. It's a lot of elements that make up well-being. What do you think is the opportunity cost of people not understanding diverse abilities and not having the opportunity to open their doors and work with them? Oh, I think you miss out on so much and you don't evolve to the same level that you could potentially evolve to. Like, I just think, what would my life be like if Jason was physically healthy and well? It would have been very different. I wouldn't have learned the lessons I learnt and some of them are hard don't get me wrong but I move through life knowing that anything can happen and I know I'll be able to pick myself up and move through it if we don't open the opportunity to have this amazing diversity and this opportunity to interact and collaborate and have people from all walks of life and all abilities come into our lives we won't even know what we're going to be missing out on. With my small children, we talk a lot about legacy and what people leave behind in the world. What do you think, like for someone like Jason, I'm sure he leaves so many little sprinklings behind him with everyone he meets. What do you think is the legacy that he leaves on those that have the pleasure of meeting him? Oh, wow. He leaves a legacy of gratitude. People walk away from Jason going, wow, I need to be more grateful for what I find so easy or everything I have. And accepting life and accepting our own capacities at the time, being accepting of who you are and where you are in this moment in time, and also just being kind. Jason will know when someone's being really uncomfortable. I remember when my fiance first met him, my fiance has had very little interaction with anybody with any special needs. When Jace saw Tony grab my hand and give me a cuddle, Jason gave him a beaming smile of 
you got this, mate. I'll give you the yes. <laughs> and Tony, remember, I remember when we were driving home going, he smiled at me. He knew. And he, he kind of gave me this, this sneaky smirk. He knew. And I was like, yeah, of course he did. And he was giving you the okay. And he felt really reassured. So Jason can do that with very simple glance or gesture. As a leader, what can someone listening do to create more of a diverse workspace or to make sure that they aren't creating barriers that might be invisible to some people? We haven't all travelled the same journey. We haven't all learnt the same lessons, nor will we in this life. So it's not about trying to understand necessarily through our own eyes, but it's about imagining if we were in that position, what that would be like. And empathic leadership is really more narrative. Let me ask and not be afraid to say, okay, can you teach me? Creating a psychologically safe culture is really important because then people will feel a sense of trust to be able to express their feelings and their ideas. That way you can all be working through the same goals but from different approaches. We talked a little bit about empathy earlier. Do you think that leaders can be too empathetic or is there such a thing as having too much empathy? I don't think there is having too much empathy because what is empathy really? It's just understanding and being able to share the feelings of one another and just hold them. Empathy doesn't mean having no boundaries. That's where I think people go, you can be too empathic. I think they're getting that term wrong. I think they're actually saying they're being boundaryless. So it's really important to still stay within the scopes of your relationship, if it's collegial or friend or family, and having the boundaries there, but still being able to have that conversation and going, wow, imagine what that'd be like for you. How does that feel for you? Boundaries are something that you've mentioned are really important. In your experience, how can someone establish boundaries when they are caring for a family member or caring for someone? It's a really difficult thing to get the right balance. It's so important to look after and fill your own cup. So remember your own needs in the process. So it's about finding the balance where you're still the caregiver, but you're still you. You're still an individual in that. There's a saying that you can't be what you can't see. What's your experience with that about how important is for businesses to have diverse workforces? I think it's really important for diversity across the workforce. And for me, diversity isn't gender. It isn't race or religion. It isn't culture. It isn't neurodiversity or physical disabilities. It's all of it. Human beings are so amazingly unique and different. The more businesses engage with a diverse workforce, the more they'll actually be able to move beyond what they even think is possible because right now they don't even know what is potentially possible? Downer is full of engineers and people who are working in facilities management and all sorts of worlds. You talk about some of the physical barriers. What would your messaging be to those who might be in positions where they could consider some of these barriers and maybe as a part of designing work or as a part of their day roles, they could actually make a difference? If they've got an opportunity to make the lives of an individual around them easier, then it's such an amazing gift. Being a part of the community, being socially connected is so important for all of us. We're social animals. We need it to be well, to be thriving. And so just little things can really improve the access and then the abilities for people to interact, engage, have that meaningful activity. And we know work is such an important part of that. So it's not just having elevators to get in. It might be then having desks they can raise to any level, depending on their chair or their movements, if they need to stand, having access into toilets and kitchenettes. Thinking about if you 
ever sit into your kitchen and just pull a chair up and sit down and think, right, this is the only level I can access, that changes where you place things. Those top cupboards are pretty much going to be empty because you never get to them unless you've got a guest. Anything like that where you can make the world a little bit more accessible is an amazing gift and it might not be something you need, but it's just about thinking about the others that come behind you (laughs) that might need that. You mentioned that you learned many lessons over time from your experiences, as many people do, especially through those formative years in their childhood. How has this shaped you as a leader? I remember when I came into the role of manager and I started to get really worried that I'd be good enough. And it was quite a few people around me who said, you have been leading people for as long as I can remember. You are a natural born leader. That is no different. And it was then that I realized that I have always led from the perspective of knowing my way is not the only way and it's certainly not the right way. I really love that collaboration piece where I go, what do you think? What do you think? What else? What's another idea? And then together as a group for whatever our goal is, we'll pick the best one that will have the best potential outcomes. Thank you so much, Tash. It has been such a pleasure to have a chat to you and Jason sounds wonderful. Your family sound absolutely gorgeous and I can see where you get your your energy and your life and everything from hearing those stories and I can't wait. A friend of mine who has a daughter who's got a rare neurological condition, her and I talk endlessly about what technology is going to change the lives of these people in the years to come. I just can't wait to see those invisible barriers disappearing and physical barriers disappearing and these people, whatever it is that they want to do, being able to do. Thanks for your time and thanks for hearing my story. And you're right, I don't think I'd trade any of my family and I think they're keepers. Yeah, they sound like keepers to me too. I hope that you loved listening to Tasha's story as much as I enjoyed recording it. It was so interesting hearing her stories about her experiences growing up and about Jason and what a beautiful person he is and his social life and what he's brought to this world and to Tash and to her family. And also about what we can do as individuals to remove some of those barriers that people with diverse abilities have and what richness they can bring to the lives of those who have the pleasure of meeting them. And before we finish up, I would like to take the time to acknowledge the Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of the land where this episode has been recorded. Make sure you tune into next month where I speak to a brand new guest about a brand new topic as we continue to share, learn, connect. This podcast is now available on your favourite podcast app. Please share it with your friends and make sure to subscribe. And what that means is that you will get our episodes as soon as they drop. Our producers are Darby Martinelli and Melanie Blows and I'm Georgia Lutby. Thank you for listening.